You may have heard of Andrew Jackson. You see his face on every $20 bill, his likeness in countless statues across the country, his legacy in our conflict, our us-versus-them mentality, and in the rotten core you inevitably see when you look under the American crust. Old Hickory is one of the most important figures in American history, and perhaps the most emblematic of our broken cultural attitudes. He was corrupt, violent, hypocritical, selfish, egotistical, and above all, self-righteous. He is the epitome of the American self-image. You may not have heard of Prudence Crandall. There's a museum named for her, and she was named Connecticut State Heroine in 1995, but the recognition often ends there. She may not be a household name, but you can see Crandall in the resilient teachers nurturing our future. You can feel her fight in the ongoing struggle to make our schools a place for all Americans to learn and grow. You may not hear her name often, because she didn't seek future recognition. She recognized a future worth seeking. And for that, Prudence Crandall is one of the greatest of the United States. I'm Michael Makar, and this is The Goats. POTUS number seven, Andrew Jackson. Today's GOTUS, Prudence Crandall, Educator, Abolitionist. To begin with a preface, I am an optimist. The goal of the GOTUS is to increase recognition of those who pushed forward, to look up and to understand what's held us back. The focus is the goddess, the good, the great. However, you can't build on rotten timbers. And old hickory is a deeply embedded, essential part of who this nation is. So, this is one of the times we're focusing on demolition. Not coincidentally, this is the first episode to feature a widely known president. It's easy to see why Andrew Jackson has a place in the American canon. Too young to fight in the Revolutionary War, he served as a courier. His legal, political, and military careers intertwined, ever-growing. He settled on his plantation but served his nation for decades. The frontiersman, hero of the War of 1812, and Tennessee legend ran for president as an agent of the common man. He rallied a grassroots movement against the corrupt Washington forces holding this glorious nation back. He is exactly what this nation tells you to be. But the grassroots he cultivated? Weeds. The fortune he built in farming, the toil of enslaved people, and the nation he so dutifully served, a nation of, by, and for white men, claiming justice all the while. He's exactly what is and always has been wrong with this nation. He campaigned for the common man, and I believe he did see himself as an agent against the elite, but his work for the common man was antagonistic to anyone who didn't fit that label. And of course, the most abused, oppressed, forgotten, hardworking, peaceful, forward-thinking demographics in America are not Andrew Jackson's common man. To cover Jackson's campaign, Jackson won the most popular and electoral votes in 1824, but because he didn't have a majority, the House of Representatives got to choose. Their choice, John Quincy Adams, 
became known as the Corrupt Bargain. So formed the Democratic Party, and so challenged Old Hickory to the title that he had already rightfully won. In Jackson's words, was there ever witnessed such a bare-faced corruption in any country before? The bargain added fuel to the fire Jackson stoked, and cemented the narrative that he fought for the people against the elites. He won the 1828 election in a landslide, beginning one of the most significant, destructive, and revered presidencies in our history. It was during Jackson's presidency that Crandall made her mark. Prudence Crandall opened the Canterbury Female Boarding School in Connecticut, teaching a curriculum usually exclusive to schools for boys in that time. Arithmetic took precedence over etiquette in the coursework, unusual for a girls' school of the era. And then, a young woman with aspirations to teach enrolls. But Sarah Harris's enrollment was not met with open arms by the wider Canterbury or Connecticut community. Education is a tool of empowerment, and consequentially, the U.S. has always made education access a privilege of whiteness. So when Sarah Harris, who was black, enrolled, the people of Connecticut erupted. The school was constantly threatened, slandered, and at one point was subject to an arson attack. Prudence Crandall, upon seeing the reception to a black student's admission, sees the opportunity for growth and change. She hears opportunities knock, opens the door, and then converts the Canterbury School to a school for girls of color. Others follow Sarah's lead, coming from other states to attend Crandall's academy. And some historians consider that this happened because it was clear that Prudence was headed for a legal battle. Which she was. The state of Connecticut passed what is known as the Black Law, prohibiting people of color who do not live in the state from receiving schooling in Connecticut. There's no interpretation required to understand their intention. The law declares that people of color moving for schooling would tend to the great increase of the colored population of the state and thereby to the injury of the people. Seriously, the definition of words like people and all was just broken in the past. Prudence Crandall is convicted of teaching girls who, according to the prosecution, were not people of the United States. Mark down another great, peaceful, positive American jailed for doing something pretty nice. Her case is later overturned because the Court of Errors found the language, not the basis, of the charging documents as insufficient. It's recognized as a cheap attempt by the court to reverse a preposterous conviction without conceding any human rights to black people. Joke's on you, Connecticut Supreme Court of Errors. Crandall's case would later be cited in Brown v. Board of Ed. Unfortunately, in her own time, Crandall's heroism was largely unrewarded. Under constant threat of violence, Crandall pulled the plug on the Canterbury School and closed it down, just 20 months after Sarah Harrison enrollment. Sarah Harris Fairweather, for her part, remained an active abolitionist throughout the mid-19th century. She was a big enough deal to be acquainted with Frederick Douglass, and being associated with Frederick Douglass is near the highest achievement one could attain in 19th century America. The Canterbury School, the small cluster of girls and women in Connecticut connected only for a few years, made an impact that rippled out. Julia Williams Garnett, another alumni, spent her life fighting for African American and women's rights, as did Crandall herself. You do not need to fight wars to do good. You don't need to chase your legacy to be great. Sometimes, greatness knocks on your door and asks you to teach them. 
and in recognition of Crandall's fight for justice, she was awarded a small pension by the state of Connecticut decades later, a meager but well-intended mea culpa supported by such Connecticut residents as Mark Twain. With that, I hope you found some positives in the story of the Canterbury School, in Crandall's, Harris's, and Williams' outward spiral of justice. It's time for a break, and when we get back, we talk Jackson. If you're looking for uplifting, you came to the wrong country. I'll see you on the other side. Today's episode is brought to you by the Baltimore Mass COVID vaccination sites, specifically the field clinic at the Baltimore Convention Center. There's a lot of entities and people to thank now that I'm double-dosed, but I am especially grateful for the convenience, safety, and efficiency the hardworking, fine folks at the convention center established. And perhaps excitingly, when I went for my second dose this week, the lines were a heck of a lot shorter. Shout out to everyone who's already taken the time to get the vaccine to protect yourself and your neighbors. And if you haven't yet, it's available across the country. The COVID vaccine rollout is the first time the U.S. has looked globally impressive in a long time, and I'm thankful to all the healthcare workers in Baltimore helping me and my neighbors stay safe. Andrew Jackson, 7th President of the United States. Frankly, when asked to recite any policy or action of his in office, I can often only conjure the trail of tears. Digging deeper, I find the Indian Removal Act to be an effective summary of Jackson's two terms. Jackson, like many presidents of the era, fixated on expanding U.S. territory. To his credit, he envisioned the coast-to-coast monolith that stands today, back when the country barely crossed the Mississippi. But then, to be reasonable, accurate, and fair, he envisioned the neighbors of the U.S. as non-human, and his conquest was utterly despicable and in any rational sense criminal. The Trail of Tears was Andrew Jackson's brutal, deadly forcing of tribes in eastern North America to the west of the continent, because he wanted to draw bigger lines on a map. He killed thousands of people, displaced countless lives, because he wanted to draw bigger lines on a map. The neighbors Jackson invaded, you see, lived here long before Jackson's nation. But they never made claim to the land in European style, because the land is no one's and they lived here. So the lawyer, judge, crusader raids them. Andrew Jackson preached states' rights, independence, freedom, the strength of the individual over the federal government of the United States. And he wielded the federal government to destroy free, independent lifestyles from Cherokee to Seminole to Chickasaw because his federal government took precedence to him. The crimes of the United States against Native Americans are so depraved that Adolf Hitler aspired to them. And the forced migration Andrew Jackson so enthusiastically enacted is perhaps the most specific instance and best-known example. This is who Jackson was. Here's a quote from Old Tassel, a Cherokee chief contemporary to the violent forced exodus from his nation's home. Many proposals have been made to us to adopt your laws, your religion, your manners, and your customs. We would be better pleased with beholding the good effects of these doctrines in your own practices than with hearing you talk about them. If only Jackson behaved by the principles he espoused. If only this country delivered on its promises. And now, a quick rundown of the rest of the Jackson presidency. After campaigning against corruption, he builds the spoil system, basically 
You scratch my back, I'll consider scratching yours. Way to fight corruption, buddy. He opposed abolitionists, including by utilizing federal government to restrict their communications. Tally that one under human rights over federal power, baby. And to his credit, he spoke against the Electoral College, the power of political parties, and South Carolina's secession. To his reality, his politics helped cement the Electoral College as a power boost for Southern white men and a shackling of everyone else. His antagonistic attitudes and response to the election of 1824 helped cement our toxically strict two-party system, and his actions helped enable the bloodiest American war with no real attempt to heal us. If only Jackson behaved by the principles he espoused. If only this country delivered on its promises. Andrew Jackson is not our chief architect, but he laid the rafters for our signature form of governing. Hypocrisy, masquerading as democracy. A quick interlude. We're doing one fun old hickory story, and it's time for that. So, a dude tries to kill him, pulls a pistol on him. Boomer, whoops, misfires, doesn't shoot. Okay, it's the 1800s. Guns aren't the mass murderer enabling tools. They are now whatever. Dude pulls another gun. He brought it back up. Click, boom, ooh, whoops, another misfire. No shot. The assailant, holding two unworking guns, is quickly overtaken by the president. Yeah, so Andrew Jackson starts walloping him with his cane, the old hickory namesake, you know. There was no secret service or anything, but ultimately Jackson is pulled away from the assassin by his people so that he doesn't beat the guy to death. Later, the pistols were investigated, examined. Both pistols fired on cue with no sign or indication of any issue, as if the bullets were afraid of the man they would have faced. It's a fun story that makes it easy to understand the folk hero status, but, well, hold on to that one. Andrew Jackson is, in my view, the singular key to understanding our collective legacy. You see, he saw himself as the hero. So did all the white men who voted for him who subconsciously believed that black skin or being a woman rendered you inhuman. From the earliest ages of history to the present day, there have never been 13 millions of people associated in one political body who enjoyed so much freedom and happiness as the people of these United States. He's right, you see. There never had been 13 million who enjoyed so much, because Andrew Jackson failed to understand how devastatingly, how permanently, how hypocritically he failed to count the citizens of his own nation and of the United States. There were 13 million Americans then, sure, but how many enjoyed those freedoms? To the women, who he never supported voting, did the enslaved people, whose freedom he destroyed for profit? Did the Cherokee people, whose lives he destroyed for territory? And that brings us to why Jackson represents the U.S. so perfectly. He claims to stand for so much good, an upright beam of hickory carrying the load. What the carpenter won't tell you is that he's rotten at the core. The common man he rallies for is not the common man and certainly isn't the common person. He sees himself as hero, and he doesn't see his own ignorance. If you doubt how much Old Hickory informs our identity, I ask you to think of him as Batman. Born wealthy, badass, volunteers time out of his rich white life to fight crime. Batman crushes the street criminal, the lower-income folks already struggling. Well, what is Batman doing to stop the crooked brokers who collapsed the bread thief's job? Nothing. And why would he? 
He's a billionaire, and in this country, he's probably buddies with him. And yet, you, the common man, likely root for Batman. He's bigger than a superhero, an idea, a folk hero. Heck, I cheer for Batman. I was born a white American, after all. It's my identity, inseparable from Andrew Jackson's. I'm rotten at the core, just like this country will always be. That concludes my discussion of Andrew Jackson. And while he was, destructively, the most important American of his time, he wasn't the only American to have an influence. Prudence Crandall didn't seek glory, chase her destiny, or embark on continental conquest. But when Sarah Harris knocked on her door, Prudence Crandall let her in. The two of them were great, and helped countless others become great after. If you're a teacher with no aspirations to campaign for national attention, you can be great. If you're a student aiming only to learn, you can be great. If you're afraid and under attack and you stop fighting before someone gets hurt, you can be great. If you work for, not against, if you ask yourself what will benefit the common person, and if you truly work for a future that benefits the folks around you, well, you may already be on your way to greatness. So, put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, and thanks for listening.